0: As Caleb was there talking about the 40th birthday of the church, I was sitting there thinking, what did I do on my 40th birthday to celebrate? It's been so long ago, I can't remember, to be honest with you. And some of the rest of you, you, some of you laugh because you haven't gotten there yet. Others of you laugh because, yeah, I I get that. I'm definitely there. But I will tell you, I do remember something happened the year before my 40th birthday. It was in 1991. And it was about the fifth year I'd been here at Desert Springs, and that is, I had the privilege to go with Gary Olander and some others to Moscow, Russia, as a follow-up of some evangelistic uh, events in Red Square. It was pretty amazing to be in Red Square around Easter time and to see huge banners in Red Square, what I'd only seen on television, military parades, and to see a huge banner with an image of Jesus Christ and over it said "Christos Voskresas," which means "Christ is risen." Is that not amazing? That was 91. They just opened up in 89. And then when we came back, I had sort of a, an awakening because we flew from Moscow and we, we went to Moscow and we we're supposed to fly back to Frankfurt, but they told us when we got there, you can't go to Frankfurt, there's a baggage handler strike. So we're going to fly you to Berlin. Now, I grew up thinking Berlin's not a good place to be, especially East Berlin. Because there was something known as the Berlin Wall, and it was a dividing point between the Soviet bloc and the West. And so, anyway, that wall was begun in 1961 at the order of Nikita Khrushchev, and and uh, and it was then in place until 1989, when it was ordered to be opened and tore down. In the in 89. Following some uprisings in Poland, Hungary, um, that wall began to come down. But two years earlier, Ronald Reagan challenged Mikhail Gorbachev to do this, to tear down the wall. He said, we welcome change and openness, for we believe that freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. It's talking about the Brandenburg gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And there was a clarion call that went out 87 and 89. That began to happen as they allowed for some immigration and for people to travel from one part of Berlin to another. And in 91, actually, as they were busing us from Berlin to Frankfurt, got to see some of the remnants of that wall. It's an amazing thing to see how strong uh, a division there can be. And yet it was not just a physical division, it was an ideological, geopolitical division for all that it stood for. Well, you know, in the body of Christ, there are also some walls that tend to divide us. And the Apostle Paul writes about some of those walls in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. We're here in our series talking about here's the church, and a part of it for today is authentic relationships. And when we talk about it and see in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, is how there are certain things that work against authentic relationships that instead tear them down and build effectively walls that are even more imposing than the Berlin Wall of its day. Because of the mindset that's behind it. If you've got your Bibles, please read with me. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If if you carry one of these, and maybe you got a Bible app on your phone like I do, and uh, just check out ESV. That'll be most helpful. Uh, if if you don't have it, there's just it'll be on the screen. You can you can check it out there. So listen to what's said. Therefore remember that at one time you gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands Can I hit the pause button there Caleb thanks for giving me this passage Do <laughs> you hear him I didn't want to cut it out It's really good Caleb okay Uh, We'll leave that alone, and we can talk later. You you may be wondering why such a private medical procedure would be listed so prominently in such a public place as the Scriptures. And and it's because the sign of circumcision was, just in a real nutshell here, it has to do with a, a sign of being Jewish as opposed to being Greek or Gentile. You see, when God gave to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12, what's known as the Abrahamic covenant, he promised them, he chose them of all the people of the world and said, I am choosing you, not because you're the smartest, not because you're the most powerful, not because you're the greatest, but because of my choice, my sovereign choice, I'm choosing you of all the people to do something that is going to a blessing to all the nations of the world. And he began through Abraham, the nation of Israel the Jewish people and so what's happening here Ephesus is in the Greek world but there were a lot of Jewish people in that church and so wherever the gospel went there was a combination of Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus and he's addressing both groups helping them understand how God wants them to be one person not two separate entities and the sign of circumcision was given from the beginning to uh, a male child would be circumcised on the eighth day after birth and that would mark them as a child of the covenant because most of the rest of the greek-speaking or gentile world did not practice circumcision at the time so it was a distinctive so oftentimes you refer to gentiles as uncircumcised and jews as circumcised i don't recommend doing that today but that's what they did back then so having said that notice it says therefore it goes back to the fact that god has been talking about how all of us men women irrespective of our race or ethnicity we come to faith in jesus not by our works not by our goodness but by god's grace and we are his workmanship it says in verse 10 we are his masterpiece as individuals now he's shifting to talk about the masterpiece that he's building in the church, and he's going to address an issue that will mar that masterpiece, that will deface it. And that's sectarianism, or that's division within based upon some what we would call superficial distinctions. So listen what he says following now in verse 12 Remember that you at that time were separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, now since you've placed your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He who made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, one new person, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came. And he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, that's a powerful passage. And we could spend hours, we're not going to because we have other meetings this afternoon. We could spend hours going through the details of this. But I'll bet you, because you're a sharp crowd, I bet you you get what the main message is, don't you? I don't think you need a seminary degree. I don't think you need to have gone to Bible college. I bet you get the heart, the guts, the soul of this message. You have two groups of people who were racially, ethnically, religiously diverse. What did Christ do to those people who were separate from one another? What did he do? He brought them together. He broke down the wall of division which held them apart. He broke down the reasons for the hostility and the suspicion and the questioning and the alienation. He broke it down through his work on the cross, through his shed blood, through his resurrection from the dead. Jesus broke it down. So why do we keep building it back up? You see, the main thing that's here is that we are to be defined by relationships that are authentic rather than divisions that are superficial do you get that is that not said in this passage And it's not just Jew and Gentile. There's a lot of other things that are here. Here Here's a professor that I had the privilege to sit under at Dallas Seminary. His name is Dr. Harold Honer, and he writes this in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. He said, Christ has broken down the barrier. The structure of the Greek word suggests that Christ, that the dividing wall describes not a physical barrier, but the spiritual enmity or hatred between Jews and Gentiles, which separated them and since christ destroyed this enmity jewish and gentile believers should have no hostility toward one another you see the jews were in a and we use this term a lot a privileged position but they mistook that privilege they began to think they were better than others they were a blessed people chosen of god that did not mean they were more important Remember, God's program had always been for the nations. He just chose one group to bless the entire world through. And he's saying, look, you're not better than each other. You are both created to be united. Now, there is a diversity that is rich, but there should be unity, not division. In another passage, The Apostle Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. I'm not going to turn there, but you can look it up later if you want to. In essence, it says this. He says, in Christ, in a relationship with Christ, in the body of Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. Those ethnic, racial divisions should not be taken into consideration. There is no male nor female, he goes on to say. No, wait a minute, you mean, yeah, they're still male, they're still female, they're still Jew, they're still Greek, but what is he saying? Not one has authority or benefit over the other because in God's eyes, there is an equality and dignity and worth and value of personhood, irrespective of ethnicity, irrespective of gender. And he goes on to say there's no bosses there's no owners of businesses there's no employees there's no workers in Christ economy they're brothers and sisters in Christ now we could go on to say today that that there's no Republicans and Democrats there are no political groups we could say there are no Arizona Cardinals nor Seattle Seahawks most definitely Dallas Cowboys <laughs> or Oakland Raiders, Sir Matthew. Yeah, we, we tend to divide over these things by the clothes we wear, the teams we pull for, and there's a benefit in that. I, I, that's great. But not if we start thinking of any group as better and, and having advantage over others. The call is that we see each other because of who we are in Christ, not these artificial, superficial distinctions. 1963, toward the end of August, Dr. Martin Luther King stood in the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial and issued his I Have a Dream speech. If you've not read that, or maybe you've never read it. I went back and reread it. It was so good, so poignant so purposeful, especially for that day. Listen to what he says and see if it does not accurately echo and reflect the words of the Apostle Paul that we just read from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Dr. King says, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And I say amen. sometimes we think that racism is in Charlottesville Virginia and other places like that but sometimes it's right here in our midst in the church as I prepared for this message as I read these words again it reminded me of a time that that I shared it before this building was built over in the other building what's now our Student Center and and I was preaching this very passage and used those words of Dr. King. It was a guy who stormed out of the church that day. And on Monday gave me an earful. And then we met at a restaurant and I gave him an earful. I knew this guy. He's a guy that that cared a lot about me. I'd known him for a lot of years. And he said, Rick, you're like the son I've never had. I'm, and for many, and I knew a lot about him. I knew the good things, and I knew the bad things, and I knew that he was basically super prejudiced, racist. And when something clicked, even though he and I had butted heads over this issue over many times, something clicked when I used Dr. King's words that caused him to say, I can't be there. And again, we were in a public place but it would be fair to say we got in a shouting match over this issue he needed to know that the mindset that he was espousing the ideology that he was espousing is contrary to the Word of God and has no place among someone who professes to be a mature follower of Jesus and it was not welcome here nor should it be welcome at any house of worship, any Christian house of worship. you know, a few years later, uh, his wife called me because he'd had a heart attack, and she wanted me to go see him in the hospital, and I thought, "I'm not so sure that's a good idea." <laughs> the last interaction we had was not, say so we say positive. And yet I did. And God's spirit entered before me, and there was a softness and a gentleness and a tenderness, and there was. A connection that was rekindled now he still had issues but I want to tell you in the remaining couple three years of his life God used that event to soften him and help him see things in a different way and so when he did die a few years later uh, the family came to me and said we want you to do his memorial service and I said what do you want me to say because I can't get up there and pretend like everything was good that's so hypocritical and they said we know that's exactly why we're asking you to do it because we have people in our family that are unbelievers that have been alienated by that mindset over these years and if you just get up and play nice it will further push them away what would you have said I didn't know what I was gonna say but God by his grace gave me the authority to be able to speak truth but to speak it in love and there were some good indications of positive movement and I could at least say I know that he sees things differently today. Now that he's in the presence of Jesus, and say it with integrity. You know, I thought in terms of this breaking down of these walls. And when I was in Moscow, it was also preached out of this to a group of people. There were probably 55, 70 people, maybe 75 in the room at the time, and and it was good to be able to say, you know, you and I have previously been enemies. AS AN AMERICAN AND AS A RUSSIAN, AND YET JESUS CHRIST HAS BROKEN DOWN THAT WALL of DIVISION. WE'RE NOT BROTHERS AND SISTERS IN CHRIST. WE ARE NOT ENEMIES ANY LONGER. AND WHAT A GREAT FELLOWSHIP WE HAD. SOME OF THE PEOPLE IN OUR GROUP ACTUALLY HAD TALKED TO SOME INDIVIDUALS, AND THEIR JOB WAS TO SIT IN AND TO ADMINISTER ICBMs, THAT'S INTERCONTINENTAL BALLISTIC MISSILE SITES THAT TARGETED AMERICAN CITIES. And in some cases, American cities where that individual grew up. And yet, in Christ, all of that went by the boards. There's a beauty of, in Christ, the unity that comes, even though there's diversity. You know, when we need to look at that for a second longer, and that is, I got to tell you that God doesn't want us all to be alike. He doesn't want all to think alike. He doesn't want... There's a richness in the diversity in the body of Christ that should be celebrated and esteemed. Um, my ri- my life personally has been greatly enriched by friends that I have that are African American or Asian or Indian or Middle Eastern or um, just men and women alike. I've learned so much from women in my life and and just the benefit that's there. And from those that are younger, I love hanging out with guys like Caleb. We sharpen one another. I'm better as a result of that. And I pray that he's better as a result of that. Even though we come at things with very different perspectives, the diversity of that, the sharpening that comes from that is healthy and good and God-honoring. We need to understand that and celebrate that it's not that we all be cookie-cutters like I said in the first hour some of you've heard me say this when it comes to marriage I heard it from a, a Christian psychiatrist that was one of my advisors at seminary He says you know if both of you agree on everything one of you is unnecessary that's not just true in marriages that's true in any relationship isn't it we need to celebrate that but understand that in Christ we're united Now, in order for us to practically and experientially become one person, one man, as he talks about, we need something. We need honest communication with each other. If there's ever going to be authentic relationships, it has to be based upon authentic and honest communication so that we share with each other what our experience is, where we are, what's going on. Even at the risk of disagreement Ephesians chapter 4 just a couple of chapters later in verse 15 says we're to speak the truth in love that's the balance that's the tipping point speaking truth but also speaking in love is this true yes but does it need to be said is this true yes but how should it be said when should it be said is that you start to get the picture these balance one another that's authentic honest communication not just getting stuff off your chest because you need to get it off Stephen Covey puts it this way in his book seven habits of highly effective people seek first to understand then to be understood do you get the difference I know that for me most of the time I'm at a place where I'm thinking look if you just understood my point we wouldn't be having this problem so what's your issue now, you laugh, but you're in the same boat, aren't you? Yes, guarantee you. So, we need to reverse that in the Spirit of God. By the grace of God, we need to say, I want to seek first to understand you and only then to be understood. And we don't do that well. But by God's grace and through His Spirit, we can. And sometimes it's going to cause us to be offended with one another. David Dark, who's an author, teacher, School of Theology at Belmont in in Nashville, Tennessee, and teaches in a women's prison there in Tennessee, PhD from Vanderbilt said this, isn't openness to the dangers of feeling offended a prerequisite to an actual relationship? That's so media, I'm going to read it again in case you're snoozing. Wake up isn't openness to the dangers of feeling offended a prerequisite to an actual relationship and the answer is yes speaking the truth in love still you may be offended when it comes to the issue of racial reconciliation that's one of those things that that oftentimes divides us in our culture and it's one of the things we don't want to talk about don't know how to talk about and And yet, I really appreciate it has multiple applications. But I really appreciated Patrick Smith, who's a PhD, teaches at Gordon Conwell Seminary, it's a theological seminary, and at Harvard Medical School. In in his article, "Love of Neighbor and Its Challenge to Racial Reconciliation," listen to what he says. And I'm just going to exert a few things out of here. It's based on the Sermon on the Mount, which is a great study on this issue. He says, there will be unavoidable experience of discomfort when addressing these issues. Given the sordid history of racism in the United States and unfortunately in some of our churches, it seems impossible to really get at the heart of the matter without some level of discomfort. Right. Listen. Listen. He's saying there ought to be a warning label attached to these discussions, because while there's a sense of shared responsibility, meaning both sides, whichever those sides are, it is not necessary and may be inappropriate to insist the responsibility between the groups is to be shared equally. There are historic injustices that have not been fully rectified, and these continue to divide us both within and outside of the church. And I got to tell you, that was a point that was really especially meaningful to me when I listened to that. Here is, I want to engage in dialogue with people of varying mindsets, theological persuasions, in this case, racial ethnicities. And I want to understand, but then it hurts when I hear people lump me in a category, because I'm white, like... White people do this and white people do that. Because I want to say, look, there's a shared responsibility to this here. But here's the flaw in that thinking. And it was a flaw that God brought to me even as I wrestled with that. Though I still think that's true, I also have to understand that I am not the one who has been the victim, basically, or abused through, even though I saw this growing up water fountains, and laundromats that said white and colored, and they were not talking about where to put the clothes. Not at all. That type of segregation, that type of alienation. I have never been afraid that either of my sons, when they drive through the streets here or San Diego or Chicago or any other place where they've lived, that they would be stopped because they're white. Some of my brothers and sisters who are of color can't say those same things because that is their life. So I have to be a bigger person than that. I say, yeah, this pings because I don't want to be painted in the same color with, with everybody else. I've not been that abuser, but yet I am a part of a group that has perpetrated abuse and inconsistencies. So it's not necessarily a shared, equal responsibility. Do you get what he's saying here? It was a really important thing for me to grasp. He goes on to say, Common to every effort of social... Rec- I can't talk. Re- Reconciliation is a recognition that deep social wounds cannot be healed without an honest examination of the reasons for and the causes for that estrangement. Look, if we don't get past our own, and I'm speaking to most of us who are white here today, if we don't get on past our own offenses or problems or issues like that, we will never fully understand our brothers and sisters of color. It may not ever be able to this side of eternity, but we need to make an attempt because that's what Jesus would have us to do. So let's stop seeing each other in terms of our distinctions and see each other in terms of we are individuals who are men and women created in the image of God and who have great worth and value and dignity. That's the way that Jesus would have us to be about. So it's going to be painful. There's going to be honest communications. But for authentic relationships to take place, it's not going to take place genuinely. Those conversations are not going to take place in 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 a larger room like this. Those happen best in the context of a smaller setting. Maybe in a home, maybe in a classroom where there's 10, 12, 15 people, somewhere like that. Where you can be loved and you can love and you can know each other and be known in return. This year, earlier in January, there was a couple here at the church, Teresa and Joe Belmonte, and I share this with permission from them because these are their words. And they found in January this year, uh, Joe's work schedule was not allowing him to come to church on Sundays, and and so basically he needed a place where the church could meet. So they joined a national community or community group. Jeff and Angie Moore lead that group, and there's a number of other people. That was in January. Then in March, something happened they weren't expecting. Joe had a stroke it really completely knocked him down and so what was going to happen here's what Teresa said while we were waiting for the results of the procedure I took out my phone and replied to a group email from our small group one tiny email reply set so many things into motion the next thing I knew I had so many of my new family contacting me I love that she said my new family offering help offering prayers offering me anything I could possibly ask for it was like a revolving door of visitors I felt so much comfort and so much loved like hands were bear hugging me it was incredible that's the body of Christ at work she talks about how their group loves to get together and eat and on the first Wednesday they do that but they Joe couldn't come so they came up with the idea we're gonna go to where he is hospital, uh, the uh, care facility, didn't matter, that's where he was and the group, whole group came and she said this, that night was amazing we all sat in the center's day room and we ate, everyone asking questions about his recovery, care and treatment he was receiving the inpatient center staff was so interested in what was happening matter of fact, somebody, who are these people what's going on? So the presence of Christ was felt even in that rehabilitation center we had about 20 people in that room visiting joe having a wonderful time of fellowship and praise and prayer i cannot really express in words the power and presence of god that we felt during this time and the love and compassion that was outpoured from our small group i can tell you though i truly believe that this is what our pastors tell us about how beneficial it is to be part of a small group and how such a community group experience can significantly add to your christian walk wherever you are in that walk. Amen, Teresa. You preach, I'll turn the pages. Now, I'd like for you to hear from the leaders of that group, Jeff and Angie Moore. If you guys would come up here and just give us a little bit of your insider perspective on what was happening behind the scenes and all of that. I've sort of given the, the gist of it, but can you guys do that? But before you do, Jeff, Angie, tell me and tell us a little bit. I mean, I know the answer to this, but you guys have been at Desert Springs how long? 20 years. 20 years. Now, how did you get involved like in a community group? I mean, wh-
1: why did you do that? We came from a sister church mm-hmm. we, after 10 years being there and, and working pretty regularly uh, there and various things. We came here the first year. We just kind of sat in the back, didn't want to do anything. We've just kind of felt empty. It was, we weren't being fulfilled and we knew we needed to be involved. And so we got involved in a small group and in a Sunday school class.
0: Cool, that's great. I'm glad you did, so much so. And you know, look at how God's used it now. So Angie, when we were talking, you used some other terms to wrap it around that. So help us understand a little bit about what is a community group, a small group type of thing from your perspective. Yeah, I loved uh, that Teresa said family because mm-hmm. I think of it as a family. We all are a family.
1: We all are children of God in the body of Christ, but it's very hard to establish authentic relationships with all of you and with yeah. us. So in the smaller context of a community group, you're able to actually share life. Our group meets weekly, and so we actually can share the joys and the struggles that happen in everyday life because we're really actually getting to know each other and spending that time on uh, building, establishing um, authentic relationships. is the best place to do that is in a community group so yeah it
0: excellent. really can't happen in a much larger setting not right. very well yeah so now tell us a little bit about how I, I said some of the things about what happened with joe and teresa and, and that and your group was marvelous that honestly i know caleb and i were both there but you guys were there before we could get there you were there after we left you were there in between and thank you so much for doing that but Why is it that you feel like the group was involved? I mean, Jeff, did you have to call them up
1: and and browbeat them into being there, or? Yeah, well, as an amazing leader, yeah, that was my note. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't have to do anything. The, as soon as the text went out, everyone just responded. It was was immediate, it was loving, it was encouraging to see because uh, this was our family, and someone was hurting in the family. And so everyone just responded as best they could. Wherever they could, and it just happened. Well, I know that
0: that I know a lot of the members of your groups. I know the answer to this question, but you guys agree on everything, right? You never have disagreements. You never have arguments. You never have discussions. That are contrary in each other? Do you? It, everything's harmonious and
1: beautiful. One happy family. No, yeah. yeah. Just like you said uh, in your in your sermon, if if we're all agree, then someone's not welcome. Well, all seventeen people in our group are welcome because we <laughs> do not necessary. agree. They're all necessary. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Knowing the knowing the people in your group, I think you got seventeen or eighteen people, and probably twenty five different points of view. <laughs> yes, so indeed. That's good. That's healthy. And I I just want to thank you all for your ministry. Uh, and it's individuals and also as leading that group and let's give them and their group a round of applause for doing this right okay you. Thank, thank you guys